You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, also recording from Washington, D.C. today. How's it going, Katie? Doing good. Are you uh, ready to talk about the great balloon incident of early 2023? I, I floated into Washington specifically for this. That's not true, but uh, <laughs> I'm very excited to talk about the balloon since everybody's talking about the balloon. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, coming up with an episode idea was pretty straightforward uh, after this fairly remarkable U.S.-China incident, uh, which uh, certainly has raised no shortage of analogies to the... 1960s downing of Gary Powers U2 over the Soviet Union and uh, raised other questions about whether uh, if we are in a new Cold War with China, are events like this going to be part of our new normal? Um, so for listeners that perhaps weren't tracking this uh, balloon incident between the U.S. and China, it certainly did make front page news in the United States. Uh, I think many of us have been getting push alerts on our phones, uh, updating us about where the balloon was, when it was shot down over the coast of um, South Carolina. Uh, the other day, but I'll just I'll just quickly recap uh, what exactly happened. Uh, so, between about January twenty eighth uh, to February fourth, when the balloon was um, shot down, um, a high altitude balloon, uh, apparently of Chinese origin, uh, traversed North American airspace. Uh, so first, it entered over Alaska, traversing sort of north from China over the Aleutian Islands. Uh, heading then southward over Canadian airspace uh, into the United States where it entered over the state of Idaho and then eventually over Montana. When the balloon was over Montana in relative proximity to U.S. intercontinental range ballistic missile silos at Malmstrom Air Force Base, uh, we first got um, the existence of this balloon became public. Uh, the U.S. Department of Defense uh, noted that it was tracking a balloon of Chinese origin with an unidentified payload, apparently some kind of intelligence collection. The U.S. very quickly assessed that this was not an innocent meteorolo uh, meteorological um, mission, that there was a surveillance purpose to this balloon. And lo and behold, that then became a major diplomatic incident, uh, resulting in um, the cancellation of a trip to China by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, there was a statement released that specifically tied the postponement of his trip, uh, rather not cancellation, to this balloon incident. Um, China's response uh, is sort of straight out of the Cold War playbook, uh, in the sense that uh, China did claim that this was uh, a balloon that belonged uh, to, I guess, a Chinese entity. They didn't specifically say it was a government balloon. They said it was uh, carrying out an innocent sort of meteorological research mission, uh, which is exactly actually the excuse the United States used when the U-2 aircraft was downed over the Soviet Union uh, in the 1960s. So there is a real rhyme there between the rationales and the alibis that both countries turn to. Um, since the balloon was shot down, uh, which happened on February 4th, uh, China has sort of protested this and said that what the United States did, uh, did was, quote, an obvious overreaction and a serious violation of international practice. Uh, note that they did not say violation of international law or custom, but practice. So, Katie, that's that's kind of my long-winded way of outlining, you know, what exactly happened here. Um, when you sort of saw this kind of story emerge, uh, what was your what was your initial reaction and sort of how do you how do you make sense of this now in terms of just this ridiculous sort of diplomatic incident that I don't think anybody predicted uh, early in 2023? Yeah, I mean, when I when I first heard reports of the balloon, my initial reaction was 
probably not the first balloon, uh, but I don't remember any other balloons. And then my second reaction was, what terrible timing for that particular balloon to be going over the United States. Uh, the the Blinken trip was one the the Chinese had never confirmed was happening. The United States had sort of via the press confirmed that the trip was upcoming and was going to start uh, on Sunday, the 5th of February, um, but really confirmed the trip in postponing it. Um, and so the fact of this balloon really blew up in a big way, what was hoped to be a, another small step in maybe a, a cooling of the tense relationship between the United States and China, I think maybe uh, hopes for a great rapprochement was was overblown if anybody really had them but this kind of derailed that entirely you know the the biden administration's position was if blinken had gone on this trip that's all anybody would talk about would be the balloon um and any progress in any other aspect any of the other agenda items would really just fall to the wayside and i think that's probably true i think if blinken had gone to beijing this weekend everyone would be asking him to talk about the balloon um so i think it it leaves the relationship in a really awkward position because on the one hand the chinese acknowledged in a way that this balloon belonged to them in some fashion and was over u.s airspace that's part of the statement that they made um, what it was doing specifically there's disagreement on and so it's an interesting to juxtapose that with the reaction to the shooting down of the balloon because if this was a wayward weather balloon as the chinese say what was the plan? Uh, did they just want it to drift on until it crashed somewhere random? You know, somebody would have to bring it down at some point and it's a long way from China. Um, so it's sort of, it the, the shooting down of the balloon is the least surprising aspect of this entire story. Um, but that's the part that the, the Chinese have sort of overreacted to. Uh, but yeah, I think that's not surprising. What was your sort of take uh, on, on, on the balloon, your initial reaction? Yeah, so... So I will I will get to that in a second, but I think but I think what you just said is a nice segue into um, sort of this long history, which I guess we've talked about on this podcast for really years and years and years, going back to 2014, 2015. Um, and, you know, I've seen some commentators analogize what China was doing here to sort of what the United States does uh, in the South China Sea and, and in China sort of near abroad, you might say. But, you know, I think I think there's a pretty important difference. Right. So um, I think I think it's just worth kind of going into this for like understanding why the United States would shoot down this balloon. So the kinds of surveillance that China complains about that the United States carries out are surveillance missions with military aircraft and assets, not sort of clandestine intelligence collection efforts. Um, these are sort of um, U.S. Navy vessels, um, U.S. Navy surveillance aircraft like uh, P-8 Poseidons. Um, and these are activities that are carried out in the exclusive economic zone, which specifically the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which the United States has not ratified but treats as customary international law, permits under sort of innocent passage, right? As long as you're not mm -hmm. carrying out certain types of prohibited activities, that is permitted. China protests this, uh, but the United States actually tries to be consistent about this. So China has carried out surveillance missions in U.S., uh, in the U.S. exclusive economic zone, uh, and the United States does not complain about this specifically. Um, in fact, U uh, U.S. spokespeople use those, uh, you know, use those surveillance missions to sort of point out that the United States is totally fine with this because that is what international law says is permissible. Where things change, however, is when you enter territorial waters, which are defined as 12 nautical miles from the coast, or territorial airspace. Um, and that is where the balloon incident is in a significantly different category, right? This is a clandestine internet... Uh, 
intelligence mission over sovereign airspace uh, so that, you know, the Soviet U-2 incident in 1960, I think, is the right analogy for this because that was exactly that, a clandestine mission over Soviet airspace that the United States was unwilling to acknowledge. And so the U.S., like any sovereign state, has the right to destroy foreign objects in its airspace that are there without authorization. It is a matter of sovereignty. Uh, and so that is exactly the justification here for what the U.S. did. Uh, and I think it's also worth just going into quickly what, you know, U.S. officials said to justify the shoot down, which was it wasn't sort of a retributive act that, you know, China's an enemy, so we're going to shoot this down because we don't like Chinese balloons in our airspace. It was it was sort of um, that they wanted to collect this payload for counterintelligence value. So there was sort of a real kind of justification for what the United States is trying to do here. There has been a salvage mission uh, um in uh, in the last sort of 24 hours uh, 24 to 36 hours trying to recover parts of this payload the um the commander of norad just gave a long press conference today uh, discussing further aspects of the shoot down but overall i think that's that's important to understand in terms of some of the comparisons that i've seen between this chinese activity and what china complains about with regard to the united states now going back to your question um look i think i think this is on some level unsurprising in the sense that both the United States and China carry out different types of clandestine internet intelligence collection efforts against each other. I don't know what the United States specifically does, and I don't know the other range of what China does, but the fact that those kinds of activities happen uh, shouldn't be surprising. What is surprising here, of course, is the mode of collection here, which has raised sort of interesting technological questions, right? China has around 260-ish surveillance satellites that can do a variety of things from sort of optical uh, image collection to signals intelligence, electronic intelligence. So that raises the question of what exactly this balloon was doing uh, that a satellite couldn't do. Uh, one of the really early comments uh, when the story became public, when the balloon was over Montana, was that U.S. officials assessed that the additive collective value, that what this balloon was adding over existing Chinese means of intelligence collection was pretty modest. Um, but at the same time, the U.S. took countermeasures. Uh, there were reports that the U.S. was moving certain assets over uh, under the balloon's flight path. Uh, so that suggests that there was some kind of imagery collection effort. Could also be signals intelligence. Um, but what a balloon can do that satellites can't do, I think, is an interesting question because balloons are more persistent, right? Satellites in low Earth orbit are have a period in their orbit, so they miss certain, certain times uh, when they're observing a static target. Uh, a balloon could do, for instance, uh, pattern of life analysis, right? If you're trying to sort of study a sensitive military facility to look at, let's say, when are people coming in in the morning? When are most people parking their cars in a parking lot? And you want to sort of use that to then facilitate, let's say, human intelligence efforts against those facilities. Then, I mean, a balloon or an aircraft can be a useful way of collecting intelligence. So this is totally speculative because we don't we don't actually have an official understanding of what exactly this payload was doing. Um, but I think it's Pretty, pretty remarkable that this was happening uh, over over U.S. airspace, uh, right? Since the Cold War days of the U.S. flying sort of U-2 aircraft over the Soviet Union, um, this type of activity in another country's sovereign airspace has become less necessary with sort of space-based assets. So it's just interesting that China sort of took this risk. I think it raises some really interesting questions about the types of decision-making that might be happening on China with regard to intelligence collection. What is Xi Jinping thinking uh, at the same time when China's trying to sort of stabilize the relationship with the United States? This obviously turns into a, a fairly embarrassing incident that is going to have sort of far-reaching consequences, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and one one thing I want to add there. So mm -hmm. I was I was talking to Shannon about this obviously earlier. Um, she wasn't able to join us today for this. I did offer, um, but she pointed out that you know while we don't necessarily know the dynamics in China behind this whole incident, um, there's one possibility there, and this is really just a possibility. Um, you know, if we go back to 2011 when the U.S. Defense Secretary Bob Gates was visiting uh, Chinese President Hu Jintao at the exact moment that the Chinese decided to have the maiden flight of the J-20, uh, their new, their new um, fighter aircraft. And that was sort of an interesting moment in which there was a, a military movement decision that the civilian um, policymakers didn't seem to know was going to happen at that point in time. And it raised questions about you know, who made those decisions and what that, that decision tree is like and what the signaling of that was. Now, if you fast forward to this incident, you can kind of interpret it in the same way. Did somebody make a decision to send these balloons at a particular time for a particular reason? Was there an accident? Was there miscommunication? We don't actually know the answer to those things, but I think thinking about them is, is an interesting, um, you know, it is an interesting exercise because I think certainly in the U.S. context, we kind of know where the decision tree is. It may not be so clear in China, and it's not always so clear um, where those decisions are made. So I, I think the timing is the most interesting yeah. thing of all of this to me, especially after the Pentagon said um, uh, over the weekend that there had been a, a several other balloons over the past couple of years, including um, apparently at least three during the Trump administration, though Trump administration defense officials say that they don't remember hearing about these balloons. So that's that's a whole nother question I'm, I'm curious about is about previous balloon incidents. Um, but uh, and I one other thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, you mentioned uh, the intelligence collection aspects of, of a balloon versus, say, a satellite. Um, it's maybe important to note that the U.S. says that they knew about the balloon when it was in Alaska. And so ostensibly, by the time it reached Montana, uh, people on the ground knew that there might be a spy balloon. So, you know, there, there might be the value of the intelligence collected may be different if you know that somebody right. is watching behaviors can be changed. Um, but that's, again, it's all kind of speculation on, on who was informed when as to how and what. But uh, the NORAD commander did say there was communication between the U.S. and Canada, for example, about tracking this balloon. So it seems pretty clear the U.S. knew about it. Um, I would be curious to know whether the Chinese mentioned anything about the balloon, because, again, if it was a wayward weather balloon, um, there are ways for Beijing to contact the United States and say, hey, guys, there's a wayward weather balloon. Uh, that seems to not have happened. But yeah. again, it, things we can muse about but don't actually know the answer to. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it would have been really interesting if Blinken had proceeded with this trip, right? Because the Biden administration, as we've talked about on this podcast, uh, has made guardrails a central component of what it's seeking from China. And what better way mm -hmm. to make the case for guardrails palpable to use this balloon incident to be like, okay, you're saying that this is a wayward weather weather balloon. Let's pretend that that's true, even though we know it's an intelligence collection platform. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if we had ways to sort of prevent misunderstandings and actually talk about this, right? So it's, I think, um, look, I mean, the opportunity there has not been lost. I think, you know, Blinken will go to Beijing at some point. It seems fairly likely. Uh, I think China and the United States have incentives to make that trip happen. We have sort of other issues now looming on the horizon, including uh, new Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy's planned trip to Taiwan, which China has already started to flag in its um, public messaging. Uh, but yeah, the you know just to go back to sh uh, sort of decision making for a second. I mean, just thinking through the Cold War, right? I mean, in the Eisenhower era, when the U two flights were being authorized over the Soviet Union, uh, each one of those flights had to be authorized by 
the president himself because of the risks associated with something going wrong. And I wonder in China, uh, you know, I, I would fully believe that Xi Jinping at some point in, let's say, 2019, because the first balloon incident apparently happened in 2020, uh, in 2019 or so um, is reviews sort of intelligence collection efforts against the United States. Uh, he authorizes this balloon collection effort um, or he doesn't know it's a balloon. He authorizes some general collection effort over U.S. territorial airspace. He's sort of told that the risks are manageable and that nothing would really go wrong. Um, and this really gets at the fact that decision makers often don't have the full picture of what they might be authorizing. Right. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and of course, that doesn't absolve them of responsibility, but it helps explain how sort of accidents and these types of incidents can still happen. I think it'll be really interesting to look for evidence in China of anybody suffering consequences for this. Uh, you know, potentially, let's say, a shakeup at the at the MSS or other parts of the Chinese system. Um, the Chinese foreign ministry, I think, is probably, you know, I think it's fair to say probably not read into the specifics of this missile um, mission. In fact, um, the the statement that came out, you know, this whole uh, oh the balloon went awry. I mean, I think the the foreign ministry might genuinely have been told that this is a weather balloon that I think they might not actually have this, you know, might not be a cover up as far as they're concerned, which is just a pathology that's, you know, related to how information is disseminated uh, in systems mm -hmm. like China. Um, the other problem, though, is that there are multiple balloons, right? There's balloons over Latin America. There's been balloons over Japan, over India. Uh, people have been sort a of lot of balloons taking pictures, right? So uh, the fact that they've now sort of put all their eggs in this wayward balloon alibi uh, starts to get a little problematic when there are multiple wayward balloons around the world. Um, but what's really interesting, though, is that China normally does not like to acknowledge mistakes, right? It's not that mm -hmm. China apologized for this incident, but they are noting that this was this was essentially a mistake, that, that the balloon was not supposed to be where it was, right? Or that they're embarrassed about this in some way, which I think is really interesting. Um, it's Based on the public position that they've staked out, though, I think it's going to be very difficult for China to extricate itself from this incident in sort of a face-saving way. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what the fallout is going to be in the United States. For instance, Congress is going to take a huge interest in this. And if Congress has sort of public hearings about this balloon incident, that is going to force the administration to release information that I think will be detrimental to the Chinese sort of position on this and have longer-term effects on U.S.-China relations. What, I, what else I think is really interesting that we should probably talk about, Katie, is how much this balloon has sort of influenced the American zeitgeist. I mean, this was national news. And I think longer term, when you think about how Americans perceive so-called great power competition with China and this whole idea of whether or not we are in a new Cold War, I think the way in which this balloon was treated by the national press as sort of this major national story. You know, I, thought, I, I saw a picture on Twitter uh, that somebody tweeted out. It was the alien mothership from Independence Day being like, this is how the national media is treating the balloon. Uh, and I think that's fair because it, it was a totally sort of disproportionate reaction, right? This was not a major threat to U.S. national security. Uh, even the NORAD commander today in the press conference said that the reason they didn't really take any action when it appeared over Alaska was because it didn't look like it was going to pose any kind of real military or other threat to the United States. They, the U.S. only got interested when it lingered over U.S. airspace for as long as it did, which was apparently what was new about this mission compared to the previous balloon missions. So I don't know. What's your what's your sense on sort of the, the public, uh, you know, how long this will sort of endure as a, as a major incident in U.S.-China relations? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did find the reaction, you know, as, as somebody who's paying attention to these kinds of, of things, I was maybe not all that shocked as I sort of said at the top. Um, but, you know, I had my parents, for example, asking me, like, so what about this balloon thing, Katie? Um, and, and, you know, trying to explain, you know, surveillance and, and intelligence collection is a thing that countries are always doing. We don't always know about it. This is kind of the novel part of this is that people in Montana could see it from the ground and then it became a news story in Montana and then it got sort of beyond that and the United States had to acknowledge that there was a balloon flying over the United States. Um, but if that had not happened, if people had not seen it from the ground, I don't know that we would know about this news story in the way that we didn't know about mm -hmm. previous balloon flights. Maybe we would have when they shot it down. Maybe somebody else would have seen it in Kansas, say. But it is interesting that it be, it became a story because of sort of by accident, you know, the, the United States was tracking it. Um, but I imagine that the United States and, and other countries, intelligence agencies are tracking all kinds of things that we don't find out about in the public until decades later when something's declassified. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was interesting how it fed into that. I, I think it did expose kind of a, a bit of a hysteria in the, 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 polarized political context in the United States. You know, you had you had sort of Republican members of Congress really wanting to shoot down this balloon while it was, again, like over Kansas, which is insane given how large this balloon was. And the fact that once you shoot it out of the sky, you can't control where it falls. Um, so it's sort of like that that to me was was a bit worrisome because that kind of domestic political sort of politicization of um, of an issue isn't actually political kind of pushes the decision-making processes in the administration. Now, it's not necessarily evidence that the Biden administration did anything that it otherwise wouldn't have done, say shooting down the balloon once it got out over the Atlantic Ocean. But it does concern me that there's that possibility of sort of the domestic political dynamics in the United States kind of driving possibly poor decision-making processes um, on, on these, these military and intelligence kind of matters. And, and it's that's kind of worrisome because again, this instant, the balloon, it's it was a balloon you know i'm i'm not all, all that worked up about it certainly the violation of us airspace is concerning and the united states was was going to do something about that but the, the the political reaction was a bit strange to me um and i think it'll be interesting to see what the response in congress sort of once they get more information about this and previous balloons uh about whether whether that sort of sentiment will change but but it, it was was kind of an interesting um fiasco for a couple of days maybe everybody's just a little bit bored it's early february um they needed something to entertain them because it's cold I don't, I don't know yeah well i mean you know it's also interesting that biden's first instinct was to order that the balloon be shot down and of course he got advice uh, as you said from the military that it would be very dangerous to do that over u.s territory and he took that advice which is sort of what presidents are meant to do when they issue an order and they get expert advice from their military advisors about the risks associated with proceeding with an action like that. So, uh, you know, I think at that point it became clear that the U.S. would probably shoot down the balloon the moment it got over water, which is exactly what happened. And there's a remarkable uh, video taken by a bystander of the F-22 uh, shooting down the balloon uh, at, by the way, an altitude that is uh, far greater than the F-22's publicly known flight ceiling, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so we got a little bit, a little bit more information on what the F-22 is capable of, uh, and um, the missile involved was a single uh, AIM-9X. It was a pretty, pretty impressive shot to the missile. Sort of, it was a fragmentation warhead that detonated between the payload 
and the balloon very neatly separating it. So it was a pretty, it's, pretty impressive. Is this the, is this the F twenty two's first first shoot down? I, I believe know, so. I'm not, yes, I'm not read up. Okay, yeah, so, of an adversarial uh, system, of course, not against F twenty two one balloons zero. <laughs> Got it. That's right. Yeah, uh, there's sorry. somehow in the uh, <laughs> somewhere in the U.S. Air Force now there will be an F twenty two with a uh, balloon insignia on its wing uh, for its first kill, That's which is which is pretty funny super to think about. Exciting. I guess maybe we can close this discussion just with a quick bit of trivia. You know, I think uh, one of my favorite sort of tidbits about balloons and intelligence is that uh, the first form of aerial intelligence collection in human history was actually through the use of hot air balloons uh, in, I believe, the 1790s. And it was the French uh, against the Austrians. Um, uh, the French would sort of use hot air balloons to track the positions of the Austrians on the battlefield and then use semaphore to uh, indicate to ground forces uh, where the Austrians were heading. And of course, that had tremendous value uh, in, in warfare at the time. So uh, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting, you know, with, with all of this um, hype today about emerging technologies and China's hypersonic weapons, the fact that, you know, we can still have a, a good old-fashioned balloon surveillance-related crisis in international relations. Just, uh, just shows you that everything that is old can be new again. That's true. And Ankit, who among us has not let go of a balloon string and had it float over a foreign country that you know that is right absolutely katie <laughs> all right well i think we'll leave it there uh certainly not the last um u.s china incident unfortunately that we'll probably talk about on this podcast but uh certainly one of the wackier ones in uh nine plus years of doing this podcast that uh i think we've we've had the the pleasure of discussing thanks a lot for joining me katie always a pleasure Ankit. Great. For uh, listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, make sure you leave us a review. You can do that anywhere you get your podcast. We really appreciate that. Uh, and as always, uh, please feel free to reach out to Katie and I with suggestions for future episodes. Uh, like I said, the last episode we did on the Vietnamese leadership shuffle was a direct result of listener demand, and we definitely do take that into account. So please always reach out. We're very happy to take your ideas into consideration. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.